0: So let's imagine that every time you left your house to go anywhere, to do anything, you had to cross a minefield. And you understood the importance of navigating your way through the minefield, and one little mistake could be devastating. But you have the added pressure of not only you crossing the minefield, but you have to teach and train the people you love the most, your children, your spouse, your friends, whoever it is, to also cross through the minefield. So you do research, you Google it up, you try to figure it out. And you find there's lots of minefield theories. Some people are telling you there's actually no mines in the field. Don't worry about it. Others are telling you, you know, there's mines there, but they're like firecrackers and they won't hurt you. And then there's all these different theories and maps and ways to do it. But then you come across someone who actually knows exactly where every mind is and has a map that tells you exactly how To navigate your way through. With all those voices, which voice would you listen to? Well, that's exactly what we're up against. The enemy wants us destroyed, the enemy has filled our world with landmines, and there's lots of voices telling you how to navigate the minefield. But there is one voice of one who knows exactly where the minds are and exactly how to get through. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with us to the little New Testament book of Jude. So next to the last book, Jude and then Revelation. Jude was written by... The half-brother of Jesus. So in the New Testament, there's somewhere between six and eight Judes, depending. And probably all of them, their actual name was Judas. But because of Judas Iscariot, nobody wants to be identified with him. So they shorten it to Jude. This happens to be the Jude that's a half-brother of Jesus. even tells us that he's the brother of James. So that's another half-brother of Jesus, and it's the James that wrote the New Testament letter of James. So as you know, Mary was a virgin. She was with child through the Holy Spirit. So the miraculous birth of Jesus, and then Mary and Joseph together had other children, so they would be half-brothers and sisters to Jesus. We also know from the Scriptures that these brothers did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They did not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. And it's not hard to understand that. Can you imagine what it would be like to come to grips with the fact that your brother is the long-awaited Messiah? That your brother is actually God in human flesh? I mean, that... Just think of the challenge of trying to somehow come to grips with that. But we also know that they came to believe. As a matter of fact, James believed so strongly he was actually martyred for his belief that Jesus was the Savior of the world. Which does raise an interesting question. What could have possibly happened that would convince them that their half-brother was actually the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world? Answer, the resurrection. We're told it was because of the resurrection. It was so real, it was so powerful, it was so undeniable. Even Jesus' own siblings realize this is actually God in the flesh the savior of the world so that's our jude a bond servant of jesus christ the brother of james who are the recipients so this would be us to those who are called beloved in god the father and kept for jesus christ so, three words to describe us. The first is called, sanctified, set apart, chosen, elected. Lots of terms for this. But basically, from Genesis to Revelation, there is this strange, wonderful, mysterious, confusing theology that God, in some way, for reasons we'll never really understand chose you to be his child, to be part of his kingdom, to spend forever with you in paradise. A lot of Christians think, somewhere along the way, I just decided to receive a ticket to heaven, and there's no more to my salvation than that. That's simply not what the Bible teaches It's not that simple and it's not that shallow. The Bible teaches in some wondrous, mysterious, confusing way. God chose you. He called you. He elected you. He set you apart to be his child because he wants you to be part of his kingdom. He wants to spend forever with you in paradise. And he wants that so badly that he actually sent his son to die on your behalf to make it possible. So think of it this way. Let's imagine some well-known artist comes to town and is having a concert and everybody wants to go to the concert or the show. So within hours, the tickets all sell out. And you happen to be one of the fortunate few that got a ticket. And you're so excited you're going to the show. That's great. But the truth is the artist doesn't know you. The artist isn't excited that you're coming to the show. The artist probably doesn't care less. Just glad that the tickets sold (laughs) Think how different that would be if this artist comes to town and knows that you live in Lincoln, Nebraska and so wants you to be there to experience this moment together, that the artist provides you the ticket The artist sends transportation. The artist does everything possible to get you there with the perfect seat to be part of this wonderful experience together. It's a very personal invitation. That's a very different conversation. That's the idea of being called, elected, sanctified, set apart, chosen by God. Oftentimes when God talks about this calling or this election, It's in conjunction with a discussion about his love. So that's the second description. Those called beloved, loved by God. One of the amazing truths of our salvation is God chose you. And when he chose you, he knew your story, past, present, future. God knew everything about you. And he wants you to be his child and to spend forever with him in paradise. It's not a random choice through a phone book where God just throws a dart or points his finger. It's because he knows you. It's because he loves you. It's because he's made a choice. He wants you to be with him forever. The third term is the term kept which is actually a military term. It means protected or guarded by soldiers. Jude's concern is not that the false teachers are going to lead you astray and you're going to lose your salvation. What he's actually saying is you're guarded, you're protected. God's got that part covered. So the tone, the feel is like a parent having this conversation with a young child. And trying to explain to the child, there are bad people in the world. And these are people that want to do you harm. And so you can't go with strangers. You can't get in somebody else's car. You know, all these conversations parents have with children because there's landmines out there. And we have to teach them how to navigate the landmine, the minefield. If the child doesn't listen and harm comes to the child, the child doesn't cease to be my child, still my child, but the child goes through uh, pain and heartache that could have been avoidable. So that's the idea of the letter. We're God's child. He loves us. He's trying to protect us from unnecessary harm. That's the, that's the feel of it. He wants three things for us. Verse 2. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Multiplied carries the idea. He wants you to experience more of his mercy, more of his peace, more of his love. So think of it this way. Honestly, how many times a week do you struggle with shame? Do you struggle with guilt? Do you struggle with, with uh, kind of this feeling of despair and hopelessness? What I refer to as the dark room. How many times a week do you find yourself in the dark room? To which I would say, what are you doing in there? If you have trusted Christ as Savior, what are you doing in there? And the answer would be, somebody lied to you. The liar, the deceiver got to you, and you've believed it, and that's what gets you in the dark room. Jude wants you to know the truth, because it's the truth that sets you free. He wants you to experience more of God's peace. So how many times a week do you struggle with anxiety, do you struggle with worry, do you struggle with fear? If you knew the truth, it would set you free from that. So why do you struggle? Answer is because someone lied to you, the liars got to you, and convinced you of things that aren't true, and that's what creates those negative emotions. Jude wants you to know the truth, that's what sets you free. The third one is God wants you to know more of his love. So honestly, do you feel loved today? Maybe you feel lonely. Maybe you feel unloved. Maybe you feel rejected. Maybe you feel discarded, marginalized, kicked to the curb, unwanted. To which I would say, why do you feel that? The answer is because the liar got to you and has lied to you and you've believed some things that aren't true. Don't you understand how much God loves you? Don't you understand what it costs God to make it possible for you to spend forever with him in paradise? Don't you understand that he cares about every little thing that happens in your life every single day? So this is the idea that when the liar gets to us and deceives us, we believe things that aren't true and has all kinds of negative effects in our lives. So he wants us to know the truth because the truth sets us free. Verse three, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity, I was compelled to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. So Jude says, I wanted to write you a nice letter that celebrates our wonderful salvation. But rather I felt the necessity, I was compelled by the Holy Spirit, we would say, to write and appeal to you. That word appeal is a military term. It's used to describe an officer Rallying the troops right before it's time to go into battle. So it carries the idea of motivating and challenging and casting a vision. It's a little bit like a coach in the locker room right before the big game, only the stakes are so much higher. The general is trying to rally and motivate the troops because if we don't go in there with all we have, we're not going to come back home. So the idea of contend earnestly is a Greek word from which we get our English word agonize. It's an athletic term we use to describe a wrestler or a runner agonizing in order to win. So imagine a runner coming down the home stretch and giving every last bit of energy agonizing all the way to the finish line. So he says, I wanted to write you a nice letter about our salvation, but was compelled to appeal to you, to motivate, to challenge you, to agonize for the faith. Now, we don't typically use this language, but this is common in the New Testament, that when you see what's called the definite article, the the in front of faith, the faith, It's typically a reference to a creed or a body of doctrine, the faith that defines us, our doctrinal statement, this creed and this language is creedal that is passed down from generation to generation. Now, in Jude's time, they did not have the completed New Testament. We would simply say today... The reliable, inspired, authoritative word of God. That's what we're agony, agonizing for. That's what we're, we're contending earnestly for. What's the concern? Verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. So this language here is really important. This is not talking about the secular world. It's not talking about all the lies and deception in the secular world. They're not creeping around unnoticed. It's pretty blatant. It's pretty obvious. This is talk about someone who's creeping. Literally, it means to slip in the back door unnoticed. So stop and think about this. This is someone who looks like a Christian. This is someone who sounds like a Christian. This is someone who smells like a Christian. That's how they're going unnoticed. They're creeping in this back door and no one notices. So what are they doing? They creep in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, just meaning the prophets warned us this would happen. He refers to them then as ungodly persons. Literally, the word means without God. So these are not Christians. These are not actual believers. This isn't someone who just has a messed up theology or is confused or needs to be taught. When you creep in, you're intentionally sneaking in. Your intent is to go unnoticed. With a desire to lead people astray. Ungodly persons. And what do they do? Who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Uh, basically we would say license. Meaning there is a minimalizing or dismissing of the concept of sin. License just means sin is no big deal. Don't worry about it. So this happens a couple of different ways. It can be the idea that sin isn't really real. You know, it's kind of this archaic concept. So don't worry about it. God's a God of grace and mercy and love. And you and Jesus, you're kind of buddies and he's okay with how you're living. So just, you know, just go with it. The other would be, well, sin is still sin. I mean, technically. But because God's a God of grace and mercy, you sin tonight, get forgiveness in the morning, no harm, no foul. So that's usually what's meant by the idea that grace becomes this license to sin. So we have to be really careful with the language here. Because the legalist believes if you talk too much about grace, it leads to... To a license to sin you hear people talk about this all the time if you think that's true you will never embrace amazing grace you will never get beyond ordinary grace because for you the risk of amazing grace is too high because theologically You've misunderstood something. Grace is the gateway into the life of the Spirit. To say too much grace is the equivalent of saying you're too filled with the Spirit. You know, I'm really concerned about you. You're just too filled with the Spirit. I mean, what sense does that make? Paul anticipates this objection in Galatians chapter 2. And he actually says, if you say grace turns into a license to sin, then you're making Jesus a promoter of sin. And he answers that by saying, absolutely not. So what the text is saying is these false teachers that creep in unnoticed turn grace into a license to sin. In other words, they twist it into something it actually isn't. So again, think through this. We're talking about someone who is slipping in the back door. They're creeping in on purpose. They're seeking to go unnoticed. They're not going to deny the scriptures. They're not going to say things that are obviously untrue. But what they do is they begin to turn and twist our theology to mean something it doesn't actually mean. So they turn the grace of God into a license to sin. The second thing he identifies and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ So because he says only master and Lord, both of those are referenced to Jesus, maybe part of the issue is this idea that all roads lead to God, that Jesus isn't the one and only way to God, which of course would be a popular belief today. Even though Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but Through me. So perhaps the false teachers were denying that. The idea of master and Lord is the idea that, you know, Jesus isn't really in charge. He's not the master. I'm not the slave. I mean, we're buddies. And because we're buddies, He's kind of okay with my sin. And because He's a God of grace and mercy, it's not that big a deal. I think there's lots of Christians that live lifestyles that are offensive to God, and they've convinced themselves it's okay. Hey, Jesus and me, we're buddies. We get along fine. He's okay with this. It's the whole grace and mercy bit. That's what he's talking about. So a lot of scholars think this idea of denying our Master and Lord is a denial of the return of Christ and the judgment of Christ. And they get that because Second Peter and Jude are very similar. There are certain places where they're virtually identical. And a big problem that Peter's dealing with is a denial in the return of Christ and the judgment of Christ. So they may be dealing with the same false teaching. So think about what he's just said. The ungodly, those who are without God, are those who have determined to be their own God. He's told them grace is a license to sin. You decide what's right and wrong. And ultimately, Jesus is not coming back to judge you. Don't worry about it. Now, does that sound familiar? Genesis chapter three. There's a serpent that creeps in unnoticed. And what does he say? You can be your own God. You don't have to surrender to God as God. You can be God, ungodly. He says, You know, you can decide what's right and wrong, a license to sin. You surely will not die. God's just trying to scare you. There aren't real consequences. It's the same three lies. The enemy's crafty, but he's not terribly creative. It's been the same three lies for thousands of years because they're highly effective. So what this person says is, hey, there's not really any landmines out there. God's just trying to scare you. Don't worry about it. Or yet there's landmines, but they're kind of like little fireworks. If you hit one, no big deal, no harm, no foul. So here's the question. How do these voices come into our lives and influence us? The language creep in the back door kind of has this imagery of a building they're sneaking in the door. So they're here somewhere this morning. You know, where, where are they? Look around you. But that's not really the language. We're not talking about a building. We're talking more about Christianity, if you think of it, under the umbrella and infiltrating Christianity, unnoticed. They look like, sound like, smell like Christians but they're actually leading people astray. So in the ancient world, in Jude's time, before there was electricity, before there was the internet, before there was the printing press, just think about it. The only way this happened was literally someone physically talking to someone else, influencing others astray. It could have been literally infiltrating the group. But think how much that has changed over the years. How do these voices get to us today? Well, they get to us through the radio. They get to us through the television. They get to us through movies. They get to us through the internet. They get to us through books. They get to us through podcasts. They get to us a hundred different ways. And seek to convince us that something's true That isn't actually true. They're convincing us there's no real minds in the field. Or what minds are there are not really of any concern. So think of it this way. If your desire as a Christian is to live your life the way you want to live it. I don't want Jesus to be my master and Lord. I don't want him telling me what to do. He's my buddy. He's my pal. We get along fine. And so you're determined to live the way you want to live. And you're determined to find someone who claims to be a preacher or some church that will tell you that's okay. If that's what you want, you can find that. You can twist the Bible and make it mean anything you want it to mean. So if you're determined to live your morality, then you will construct a theology to accommodate your morality. So one of the things to think about is what is the starting point Is the starting point, I want this to be true. I want to believe this. I I, I want to live this way. Therefore, I'm going to Google it up. And I'm going to find a preacher. I'm going to find a church. I'm going to find somebody that will tell me it's okay for me as a Christian. If that's what you want, you can find that. And you can believe all day long that that's what the bible says but that doesn't change the truth that the landmines are there and they're real and they will do serious damage when you hit them it's a very different attitude when you are agonizing for the truth I don't start with what I want To believe in how I want to live. I start with what's true. I want to know what's true. And what has God actually said? And having agonized, contended earnestly for the faith. Now that I understand this is true. I will adjust my morality to fit my theology. So a lot of the question you have to wrestle with is what is the starting point? I talk to people all the time who want to believe something's true. They Google it up. They find someone that tells them the Bible says that's true. And they're like, there it is. Well, if you're going to start with your morality and then find a theology that accommodates it, you can do that. But the consequences will be severe. So that's Jude's concern that they creep in unnoticed. It sounds like the Bible, looks like the Bible. Those seem to be Bible verses, and yet they lead you astray. Verses 5, 6, and 7 are just three quick illustrations of times in history where God responded to rebellion, where God responded to sin. The message of the false teachers is God is God of grace and mercy. He's kind of okay with sin. Don't worry about it. And so these illustrations show otherwise. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, so they already know this, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So he's talking about God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt, brought them to the promised land. Twelve spies went in, all agreed it was a land flowing with milk and honey, but ten of the spies said, there's giants in the land, we can't trust God, we can't go in. And they persuaded the majority. Now stop and think about, if this is already where they're at, struggling with their own fears, then these Uh, voices convince them that's best and they choose not to believe, not to trust God. And so God in judgment says then this entire generation will die in the wilderness and will raise up the next generation and see if they will trust me and enter the land. If you go back and read the story, what happens is once the people hear that judgment, They change their minds. They come back to God and say, you know, we've we been thinking about it. We've been talking about it. We changed our minds. We want to go in. And God says, you're not going in. You didn't trust me. You didn't believe. So you're not going in. And we'll wait and see if the next generation will trust me. The point is God takes that rebellion, that disbelief seriously. He's not just shrugging it off. It's no big deal. The second one, verse six. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now some people think this is referring to Genesis 6 and this idea that angels had sex with women and produced this strange offspring and that's what he's referring to. First of all, that interpretation of Genesis 6 has lots of problems. And then to it's quite a stretch to think that's what this is talking about. So the most obvious is that angels rebelled. They left their proper place. They wanted to be like God. One third of the angels fell and God judged them. Again, the point is simple. When there's rebellion, when people choose not to believe, God doesn't just shrug his shoulder and say, oh, that's all right. You know, whatever you want. But he's serious about sin and he's serious about uh, truth. The third one, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality, that would be sexual sin, and went after strange flesh. This is the same as in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs. Remember, we had the strange woman, and that is simply any sexual experience outside of God's intended plan and purpose. So any sexual experience outside of a man and a woman in a one flesh, lifelong marriage relationship is strange. That's the language. To God, it's strange. It's outside of what he intended. So it could be all kinds of things in Sodom and Gomorrah. They went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Exhibited, there's an interesting word. It means to view a corpse. So the idea is that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, as an example that he's serious about sin. He's serious about rebellion. God is not in heaven as a God of grace and mercy, shrugging his shoulders saying, yeah, that's all right. I don't care. Me and Jesus, we're pals. Live as I please. Don't worry about it. The intent of the three illustrations is that God takes this seriously. And he means what he says now this idea of the judgment in sodom and gomorrah viewed as corpses meaning this is an example uh look at it think of it this way at the end of the story everybody stands some judgment before god believers stand before one judgment Never for salvation. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but a judgment of rewards. Unbelievers stand before God in judgment for their sins and then are cast into the lake of fire. So the idea is everyone, as soon as they die, experience some judgment. So let's say 10 seconds after you die, there's judgment. On a few rare occasions in the Old Testament, God mediates out judgment 10 seconds before they die in order to give people a glimpse that he means what he says. He's serious about it. The only real difference is it's 10 seconds before they die versus 10 seconds after they die. But God is serious about judgment. So the idea is the false teachers come along and say, don't worry about it. You know, God's okay with that. God's a God of grace and mercy. God's not that serious about sin. Live the way you want. You can find somebody to tell you it's okay and just go merrily along. There's no landmines in the field. Even if you hit one, they're just little landmines. They won't hurt you. So many Christians believe this. And their lives are devastated because they did not take God seriously. They did not believe the truth. Jude's desire is that we would agonize, contend earnestly for the truth because it's the truth that sets us free. Sometimes I hear people talking about other people and they will say, well, so-and-so just has to learn the hard way. So-and-so just has to learn the hard way. Well, here's the news flash of the morning. Nobody, nobody has to learn the hard way. Nobody does. It's a choice you make. Nobody has to learn the hard way. You choose to believe God tells the truth. You believe, choose to believe that God has A lamp to my feet, a light to my path. He's given me the map. He's telling me where the landmines is. He's telling me how to negotiate the minefield. I just choose to believe that or not. Jude's desire is that you experience more of his mercy, more of his peace, more of his love, but that's only going to happen when you earnestly contend for the truth because it's only the truth that will set you free. Our Father, we're thankful that you have given us the truth. You've given us the map that tells us how to negotiate a very dangerous and confusing world. Lord, help us not to look for truth this is just simply what we want to hear. Lord, help us to look for truth that is true. That we might change and adjust our beliefs and our behaviors to live and surrender to your truth. Because that's ultimately what sets us free to live. Lord, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.